two sections in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, from 7 to 9, and then from 17 to the end of the chapter. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And then jumping over to verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you, get, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not, the, not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. 
he is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Let me introduce you to Susie. Susie's not her real name, but her story's a real story. Susie was saved when she was young. And all she wanted when she was a teenager was to follow Jesus for the whole of her life and to marry a godly man. When she was in her early 20s, there were a a number of guys who seemed to show some interest, but nothing came of it. And now Susie is in her 40s. She still loves Jesus with all of her heart. And she's still single. Sometimes that really weighs on her. Other times she's just so busy and full with family and church and work that it's not at the front and center of her mind. But then somebody may say or do something and it's right in the forefront of her mind again. It might be something that is said in church that's really unhelpful. Like, well, don't you want to be married? Or it could be something less direct that's no less painful. One of those kinds of conversations that leaves somebody thinking, well, it's God's plan for everyone to be married. So, dot, dot, dot. All of a sudden, all of the questions that Susie has wrestled with for years come flooding back. Is it God's plan that everyone should be married? If it is, does that mean I'm failing as a Christian? Are married people the only ones who fully live out God's plan? All of those questions are really, really important. And Susie's story isn't unique. In our church family counted through the membership list this week, one in four are single. Perhaps because of divorce or death, but mostly because one in four of our members are not married. And so for many of you, Susie's questions are your questions. But even if they're not, the questions that Susie wrestles with, she shouldn't wrestle with alone. Because our responsibility, our commitment, our privilege as a church family is to support one another with all of the questions of life that we are wrestling with. 
So for one in four, some of whom are regularly going to be struggling with those questions of Susie's, in, to a, a real sense, Susie's questions are all of our questions. Because we want to be living in such a helpful way that we are supporting our brothers and sisters in all of the struggles of life. And tonight we're thinking specifically about singleness. Now they are some of the questions that Paul answers in this passage. We have read the vast majority of this chapter and it would be impossible tonight to examine every detail. But the reason I asked Nigel to read all of it is so that we would start to get our arms around the big picture that Paul establishes in 1 Corinthians when it comes to singleness. So if you look back at verses 7 to 9, that's where he begins to get into this topic. And then you drop down to verses 25 to the end of our reading, and he comes back to it in a big section. Then right in the middle, verses 17 to 24, there's this section about circumcision and slavery that seem to be completely unrelated to marriage, singleness, and divorce. And yet, actually, they're illustrations of the principle that is the foundation to everything Paul is saying about marriage, singleness, and divorce. So we're not going to go line by line. And in weeks to come, we might well come back to some of these verses to work through things in a little bit more detail. But tonight, I want us to get our arms around Paul's big idea. What are the key principles for singleness? And to work through the text, I want us to think about three key questions. Firstly, what are the godly reasons to stay single? Secondly, if that's what God calls someone to, what are the godly principles for being single? If God calls some to it, then he must tell them in that situation how to live. And if that's true... Thirdly, how do we respond to some of Susie's questions? That's where we're going to go. So firstly, let's look at four godly reasons for staying single. Now, given what we saw last week, it might be a bit of a surprise to hear Paul speak so positively about singleness because the first six verses of this chapter were to our um, proper English ears, a little bit embarrassingly positive about the intimacy of marriage. And then we learn that marriage isn't the only relationship that God planned for men and women. We know that from verse 7. Uh, when Paul wrote this, he wasn't a single man himself. We don't know definitively that Paul was never married. We know that he was a very senior Jewish leader before he was converted. And usually, such men were married. So it's possible he'd been married and his wife had died or left him when he became a Christian, or that he was never married in the first place, which I think is where I'd land, because otherwise you might have had some reference to that situation at all. But whatever the background was, here's Paul saying in verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am, meaning single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, to the unmarried and widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. So here's the first reason to stay single. It is a good gift from God for some. Singleness is not what's left when the best people have got married. 
And for those who are called to singleness, it is a gift. The Greek is literally a charisma from which we get charismatic. It is a gift from God that he describes as good. That word, kalos, means beautiful and right, which means we need to banish the idea that it is universally better to be married than single. Secondly, we need to be realistic about the challenges of relationships in this world. We know some of the difficulties that Susie experiences because she's single. But look where Paul goes in verse 28. A second reason for staying single is that marriage brings trouble in this life. And we know Paul's not anti-marriage. You've only got to read Ephesians 5 to see this lofty, glorious, wonderful vision of what marriage is. But Paul doesn't look at marriage through rose-tinted glasses. He's honest. He explains to us what married life is really life. A lifelong relationship of two sinful people is going to cause friction. Now, in God's sovereign plan... He works through that friction to sanctify that couple. He presses home the gospel into different aspects of a couple's life through the reality that they are living in a covenant that they will not break such that they will both become more like Jesus. But that means there are troubles in marriage. And Paul's honest about that. He knows that single people face difficulties and challenges too. But he doesn't want us to have the wrong expectation for marriage. Thirdly, staying single enables us to make the most of the time. Verses 29 to 31. Time is short. Eternity is beckoning. I hadn't prepared all of this helpfully enough to give Nigel enough of an idea about where we were going, but that's exactly what he was saying in his lead. This this reality, this reason, it's hard to remember because it is a, a reason for singleness that is seen by faith and not by sight. What we see is all of the comfort and pleasures and things that we are surrounded by in our life. And it can be all too easy for us to slip into thinking that this world's our home. But it's not. And even a gift as precious as marriage has a sell-by date. Not in the sense of anything human, but in the sense that either we will die or the Lord Jesus Christ will return. In the Bible's timeline... Jesus' first coming starts the timer ticking for what the Bible calls the last days, which means Jesus could well return before we go to bed tonight. I hope that's a way of thinking that is on your mind. Jesus could return. I've been thinking recently, when would it be brilliant if Jesus returned? I would love it if Jesus returned on the coronation of the king. Whole world's watching, and then Charles is completely overshadowed by the king of kings. We don't know when he will return. But our calling as Christians is to live right now and as we look for the rest of our life 
with the reality that Jesus is going to return and may well return now. And that changes how we view everything and use our time. So Paul's list in verses 29 to 31 doesn't mean that spouses shouldn't care for their husband or wife. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't experience genuine emotions. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to give away everything that we have. He means that we should not live as though our ultimate joy and satisfaction is in anything in this world. Because none of it, including our marriages, can be taken into eternity. Given how brief this life is, in that context. If the Lord calls you to singleness in this life, in two billion years time, when you are still eternally secure and married to Christ forever as part of his bride, you will not look back and think that you sacrificed much in this brief life. That applies for anything and everything that we sacrifice, not only for relationships, but for anything. And that feeds into the final godly reason Paul highlights for staying single. Verses 32 to 35, singles can be single-minded in their focus on pleasing the Lord. Paul's not saying that if you're married, you can't please the Lord. (laughs) Obviously, You can, and that's our calling, but it looks different in marriages. Because marriages bring life-changing responsibilities and commitments between a husband and a wife. And if the Lord blesses you with children, in the way you care for them. It means all of those responsibilities are good and right, but your time and your attention is rightly divided amongst many responsibilities rather than being focused on one. Now, you can think of all sorts of ways that that might be lived out. Think about what that might mean in your personal devotions, or in the way that you do hospitality, or in the way that you serve, or in the way that you give. You can think of the implications in a thousand directions. I want you to think of it very specifically in the context of mission. Just imagine that we here next week another SJ update on medical missions in Moldova. I can't respond to that. However powerful and urgent the appeal may be, and think, right, I'm going to quit my job and move to Moldova. Because I have responsibilities that the Lord has called me to here. But if you are single, you could do that. I'm not saying you have to. I'm not saying you should do it. But You could do it. There is a freedom in your singleness that enables you to respond and adapt to different needs, even in different countries, in ways that other people who are married can't. In all sorts of different ways, single people can focus on pleasing the Lord in an undivided way. There are four reasons for singleness that Paul highlights in this chapter. Because there are good and godly reasons for singleness, I want to think now about four godly principles for living a single life. It's going to pick up throughout the chapter four big ideas for you. Firstly, singleness is a good gift God assigns to some Christians. 
So I'm looking at verses 7 and 8 and 17 and 26. Okay? Each of those verses is feeding into this principle. This is one of those subjects where you've got to hold a number of Bible passages, not just in this chapter, together at the same time to make sense of the subject. Okay? So we know from Genesis that when God created Adam, he said to him, it's not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And for many, many people, Christians and non-Christians alike, marriage is God's good gift to them. And Paul believes that too. So if you go home later and you read from 1 Timothy 5, Paul says to Timothy, so I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, and to manage their homes. Paul is pro-marriage. But he also knows it's not God's only plan for people's lives. For many, many others, God's gift, verse 7 is that they remain unmarried, and that, verses 8 and 26, that that is good. And we need to remember, verse 17, that singleness, even if it's only for a season, is, <clears throat> is a situation the Lord assigns to people. Which means it's really important that we hold those two things in tension all the time. The fact that Jesus and Paul were single does not mean that singleness is more godly than marriage. And the fact that God gave Eve to Adam does not mean that marriage is more singleness, marriage is more godly than singleness. Both are God's good gifts. Both can be used for his glory. The question is what is the Lord calling me? and you to do. Second principle. What matters most is that God has saved you. That is the big idea in verses 17 to 24. There's eight verses there. Eight times the apostle says that we were called. Not called in the sense of called to singleness, called to marriage, called in the sense that the most important thing about any single one of us is that we have been saved by the grace of God, which is the biggest of ideas that we're remembering when it comes to Easter Sunday. That the Son of God willingly gave his life so that we could be rescued from the dominion of death and brought into the kingdom of life in his Son. That is the only relationship status that exists into eternity. Everything else will end. So without underestimating the importance of all of those other discussions, we must not neglect eternity. Feeds into the third principle in this little section, 17 to 24. Paul calls us to be content in our situation. Now, there's a lot of detail in these verses. And again, we're just going to focus on the big idea. He states his big idea in verse 17. He repeats it in verse 20. And he comes back to it in verse 24. He says it three times. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God saved them. 
That's the principle, the foundational principle that he applies to marriage, divorce, and singleness. And he helps us see what that means with two illustrations, which on the surface you might think have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with human relationships. But look at what he says. Firstly, verses 18 to 20, he points to circumcision. Circumcision separated Jews from Gentiles. So you picture this church in Corinth. Young Christians, some of them have come from a Jewish background, some of them have come from a Gentile background. If you've come from a Jewish background, you're living in a Greco-Roman world. There are a number of things in that world where you might be hindered and held back if you are visibly Jewish. So some would be keen to remove any sign that they were Jewish. It's one problem. There's another group of people who've come from a non-Jewish background who see circumcision and they grow to understand how important that is. You see, for lots of Jews, circumcision isn't just a physical act. It is a symbol for an entire system of salvation by works. So if you've not been circumcised, the idea of being circumcised isn't just about a physical something. It's about doing something that's going to show that you've done everything you can to be right. And Paul unpicks both of those things. And he says, verse 19, circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. What matters most is that God has called you and saved you to serve him. That is the most important calling. Circumcision doesn't matter. Be content to remain as you are. Second illustration. Second illustration shows us that that isn't an absolute rule. So verses 21 to 23, he points to slavery. A big topic to come back to another time, but what's the big level idea? Here we go. To begin with, same principle in verse 21. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Meaning, don't be consumed and burdened and overwhelmed with a desire to be free. Why? Because what matters most isn't your life situation, it's your soul situation. Verse 22. Whether you were a slave or a free person when you became a Christian, to be a Christian at all is to be bought by Jesus through his death upon the cross, which means it doesn't matter whether a human being has control over you or not. The God of heaven and earth has bought you at the cost of his eternal son. That's what matters most. And if that's true of you, it doesn't matter where you are in everything else is the logic of what Paul's saying. You might be a slave in Herod's household or you might be Herod himself. Both can bring God glory. And what we are called to do as Christians is to see the privilege of serving God wherever he places us. It's the remain as you are principle again. Only this time, we've got verse 21. Don't let being a slave trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. In other words, change is possible. In the context of slavery, 
Paul was writing in a time when slavery was very different to the transatlantic slave trade that we're familiar with, but he writes into that context and says, though it's not the most important thing, if you have an opportunity to become free, then take it, because that's better. And here he is in the context of all that he's describing, showing us something of a heart struggle that we all get today. It's hard to put ourselves into a worldview where circumcision and slavery are big things. I get that. But the underlying principle is something we wrestle with every day. Warren Wiersbe has a lovely way of putting this. We're prone to think that a change in our circumstances is always the answer to a problem. But the problem is usually within us and not around us. Can single people get married? Of course they can. And what a gift. Do they need to be married to fully serve the Lord? Absolutely not. Do they, in getting married, remove themselves from all the other problems that they might be facing? Absolutely not. So Paul calls us to be content where God's called us. And if in his providence he brings about a circumstance where you can change that situation, like the opportunity of coming away from slavery, Paul says, if you want to take that, then do so. But do so knowing what you're coming from and what you're going to. And all of that sets the scene for Paul's final principle for singleness. We need to be devoted where we are. We saw earlier that single people can be single-minded in pleasing the Lord. If you look back at verse 32, what Paul says here is assuming that if you are single, you are fully devoted to and concerned with the Lord's affairs and how you can please the Lord. Verse 34, your aim will be devotion to the Lord in both body and spirit so that, verse 35, you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the goal. But we all know our hearts. The goal doesn't just happen because that is the goal. It requires determined devotion. Whether you are single or married, being committed to pleasing the Lord and living a life in such a way that brings him glory, that takes determined devotion. And we all struggle with that. And I want to think for just a minute about why determined devotion is so important when it comes to the subject of singleness. It's important for all of us. But Paul's speaking specifically about singleness. How does determined devotion for pleasing the Lord help with all of those struggles that we have in our singleness? Sometimes talk about the push and pull factors in a circumstance, don't we? The push factors are what make you want to leave something And the pull factors are what draw you to something else. So I want you to imagine for a minute that you are unhappily single. What are the push and pull factors in that situation? How does determined devotion to Christ help with all of that? A push factor is you will be focused on thinking about what your singleness lacks. A pull factor is thinking that if I can get married, 
that will answer all of my struggles and problems. What does a determined devotion to Christ do to both of those things? It takes the mind capacity away from being consumed with singleness in terms of what you're lacking, marriage in terms of what you might enjoy, keeps those things in their proper place and fills your mind with the opportunity of serving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's a determined devotion. It doesn't just happen. And yet, as we pursue it, it both helps with what might push us away from singleness and what might pull us away towards marriage in ways that are not helpful. There are wonderful reasons why people will become married. I'm not denying any of that. Trying to get at that heart struggle of why you might be desperate to leave and longing for something else in ways that are consuming you unhelpfully from being devoted to the Lord. They're Paul's reasons for staying single. His principles for godly singleness. But how do we apply them to some of Susie's questions? I want to tackle two of them um, specifically. And the minute I start answering the question, I know that I will not cover every nuance and detail. And that ideally, we would spend personal time talking about all of those struggles. But we need to talk about some of them. And I want to talk about two specific struggles with singleness. Here's the first one. What if, and hopefully the question will come up so you can see it as well, what if I'm supposed to be content, but as I do, I struggle to control my sexual desires to be a husband or a wife? And the Lord hasn't provided me with one. If you look at verse 9, Paul's solution seems quite Simple, but maybe simplistic is how you might feel if you're struggling with this kind of question. His answer, verse 9, is if you can't control your sexual desires to be married, then get married. Well, life doesn't always look like that. There are people in our church family, there are people that you know in many other church families who might well be struggling with this very issue but have not yet been able to get married. What then? Again, if you're in that space, this is a conversation to be had personally in an unhurried manner. But I want you to have two ideas in your mind this evening. The first is, we need to be really careful not to absorb a non-Christian worldview as we think about our sexuality. So if you reflect on all of the messages that you're bombarded with at school, in films, in non-Christian books, the foundational principle to all of it is, unless you're having sex, you are not a complete version of yourself. Now, yes, God has made us as sexual beings. We are made in his image as men and women. But you look at what Paul is saying throughout the course of this chapter. One of the clearest conclusions Paul makes is that it is not essential to your being, to your personhood, to your identity as a man or a woman of God to have sex with somebody else. 
That is a lie that the devil has been pushing hard since the so-called sexual revolution. And if that idea gets embedded into our head, it distorts the way we think, how we can serve God joyfully, fully, and with his given self-control in the season of singleness that he may have called us to. Secondly, though, we also need to recognize that we are not promised everything we would want in this world. Some singles would love to be married. Some marrieds would love to have children. Both marriage and children are precious blessings from God. But that doesn't guarantee that any of us will be able to have all of what we would like. Where do we go from there? Because that's it's just hard, isn't it? Really, really hard. What we do as Christians is we look back to the cross and we look forwards to glory. Because our identity is in Jesus. Our ultimate identity is not in any relationship or any offspring that the Lord may bless us with. It is in the fact that the eternal God of heaven willingly died upon Calvary's cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could become co-heirs, brothers and sisters with him and sons and daughters of God. And that relationship, once begun, will carry on into all eternity when we will enjoy every blessing at God's right hand. Keep remembering that your identity is in Jesus. And I know we're focusing on singles tonight, but can I lovingly remind all of our married couples of the same thing? Don't put weight that your marriage cannot carry on your husband or wife. Your ultimate identity is not in them. It's in Jesus Christ, who alone is sufficient. Here's the second struggle. At church, it can feel like there's an expectation that everyone needs to be married. If we're to be fully godly, if we're to be fully useful. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I am quite sure I'm not the only person who has heard that kind of feedback. For all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's because we're very sensitive in what we hear. Sometimes it's because what's said is incredibly insensitive. But there can be this expectation in church that unless you are married, you're not quite fully serving. And I think as a church family, we need to hear what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7. We need to see the goodness of singleness for those whom God has called to be single. Many, many of our Christian brothers and sisters will be single until they meet Jesus. And many of them use that singleness to serve him in such a way that is a phenomenally challenging example to every other one of us, whether we're married or single. And don't just think Jesus and Paul. I want you to think Amy Carmichael 
and Mary Slessor and Gladys Aylward, single women who served and preached the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in their context, telling other people, I don't mean in a non-complementarian way, but you know what I mean, telling other people about the Lord Jesus Christ with such fruitfulness that men on the ministry with them at the same time, or since, have not been as blessed and effective as they were. I was reading this afternoon of um, somebody, I wish I brought the quote with me, who wrote at the time that Mary Slessor died, that whilst the church stumbled, a single woman stepped into the breach. I want you to think of men like John Stott and Vaughan Roberts who gave their lives in a devotion to their congregation without the blessing of being married. Some of us need to change the way we think and speak so that we don't add our cultural expectations or personal preferences on top of the word of God. But we can't stop there. We will in a minute, but we can't. just let me follow the train of thought. We need to see that being single does not mean you need to or want to Live alone. They are not the same thing. Being single in your relationship does not mean that you want to be disconnected from the rest of your church family. Whether God calls all of us to marry or not, it is not good for any of us to be alone. We all need deep personal friendships. All of us need to be folded into each other's lives. Yes, Paul was single. Yes, in that sense, he didn't need a helper who was suitable for him. But have you ever counted the number of co-laborers with whom Paul traveled and worked with and served alongside and ate with and wept with and laughed with? You might say he was single. Well, he was. But he was never on his own. He wasn't trying to do the Christian life and ministry and be an apostle to the Gentiles all on his own. He couldn't possibly have done it. He did it with all of his brothers and sisters supporting him. And being single shouldn't and mustn't mean that you live alone, especially in the church. So it doesn't matter whether you're single or married. The application to both of us is the same. Is there a single person in this church family that you could reach out to and fold into your life? Is there someone that you could give a home to? Not meaning that they're always going to live with you. I don't mean that. I look around this church, and I'm not now going to try and look at specific people because I don't embarrass anybody. There are people in our church family who are doing this so well I'm challenged when I think of the way that you love single people in our church. Your hearts are like magnets and your homes become havens. And that should be the case for all of us. We want to love and care for all of our brothers and sisters in every way. Emotionally, practically, 
but also spiritually. And the most important countercultural truth that we need to keep reminding each other is that our worth is not in our relationships. Our worth is not in our jobs. Our worth is not in our career or income. For as flowers, summer flowers, we fade and die. Fame, youth, and beauty hurry by. But life eternal calls to us.